Hi everyone, welcome to Training with Casey, where we explore animal training and living our best lives with animals. I'm Joseph Laughlin, producer of this podcast, and now here's your host, Casey Covert. Let's get started. Hey everybody, welcome to Training with Casey. I'm your host, Casey Cover, and tonight we're joined by our producer, Joseph Laughlin, who is also an exotic animal specialist and an avid follower and uh, steadier of all things marine mammal. How are you today, Joseph? I'm doing awesome. It's great to be here with you. Haven't been on the podcast in a while, but you've heard my voice, so. Yeah, we've heard your voice. Well, that happens when you're in school. That's very time-consuming. How's it Yeah, good. Are you enjoying it? Yes. Okay, steady hard, because we need you out there shining a light into the future. And speaking of needing to shine a light into the future, I know you and I have both been very concerned about the Lolita case. Yes. So I'd like to talk about it from two aspects. And the one I'd like to talk about first is something that is really breaking the back of the marine mammal industry in a certain way. And that is that um, there's a thing called double jeopardy in criminal law that says you cannot be prosecuted for the same case more than once in a criminal case. So, so go ahead. Did something like that happen with the Lolita case? Yes, because uh, the animal rights extremists took Miami's aquarium to court. And I didn't, I didn't look up the entire record, but I believe they lost in 2014 and they lost again in 2016. They've had multiple losses, but they just keep taking Miami Aquarium back to court. Lolita is now 57 years old. Her mate has passed. And, uh, you know, the, the people that have her at Miami Aquarium are really in a difficult situation or they have been in a difficult situation and a new company bought them and they agreed to send Lolita back to where she was from. And well, that's the second part of the case that I really want to dive into. But I think that we need to get to work and stop this thing where these extremist groups that are really good at collecting money from people who think they're helping animals, but don't understand the issues and the don't, you know, the terrain. And they don't work with these animals directly. Yeah. They're not knowledgeable. I'll tell you one thing and we'll get into it in more detail later. But they're going to send Lolita to a sea pen and a very wealthy man is going to make it for her. And it's going to be uh, 
three football fields, 15 acres. What happens when that money runs out? When it runs out or, uh, you know, a sea pen in the open ocean, you could have people cutting into it. You could have stuff crashing into it. You have um, storms. Well, literally, it can be like a mandolin slicer to the animals in the sea pen. It is not good protection. Now, something that I haven't updated myself on for the Pacific Northwest, but is definitely a concern all around Florida, is, for example, um, algae blooms, red tide. Oh, yeah, huh? So red tide and blue-green algae are two types of sea creatures which uh, give off toxins. And I look into it a lot because I literally had a friend who was a um, one of the editors for articles that I wrote. And... He reported to me to be very careful about eating blue-green algae because, you know, it's a rage for health stuff, right? Uh But blue-green algae can produce toxins that are colorless, odorless. Even if you kill off the algae bloom, chlorinate it, everything else, the toxins can still be there. Right. The half-life for one of the toxins is over three months. Three months. And the effects of the toxins are cumulative. And there's some people that have been really, really brilliant about how to deal with this. And that would be a great subject for another podcast. But it is not safe to just have dolphins in sea pens in this day and age because of the acidification of the oceans, the pollution, the increasing temperature. And when you get to the Pacific Northwest, um, they still have the acidification of the oceans, which is likely to bring more jellyfish, for example, and any risk associated with that. Do we have any idea what kind of radioactivity is traveling over from Fukushima? Nope. Where they had the... I actually have never heard of that. Oh, yeah? Check yeah, it out. I've never heard of that. Okay, so you remember what I'm talking about, right? Where the, the tsunami hit the um, nuclear power plant in Japan? Yeah. And there was radioactivity, which uh, escaped into the ocean. Right. And it's traveling or has been traveling across the ocean. And I've been watching it like people are saying, don't get tuna that's caught in the Pacific. Don't do this. Don't do that. Well, newsflash I don't know exactly how it is for radioactivity, but I do know that when I was a dolphin trainer and we put chlorine 
in a pool with 500,000 gallons of water in it within a really short time, like 30 seconds. It was all over everywhere. Oh. Yeah, 30 seconds. So this is an important question. All right, there's a lot more about that, but let's go back to the strategy that the extremists are using to force their perspective on legal owners of marine mammals. Yeah, we should definitely talk about that. So, when Ted Griffin brought an orca to uh, Washington coast, and that orca... Namu did not live very long. He died rather quickly of an infection. But Namu was an ambassador for the orcas. And it's unfortunate the way it went forward because they went out and just captured lots and lots of orcas with no oversight. But you have to remember that up until that point, military... Uh, fishermen, they would shoot at these orcas indiscriminately. They were considered just competition for their fish. There was no appreciation or understanding for their intelligence, their complexity, or anything else. Even though, and, go ahead. And correct me if I'm wrong, but weren't some Indian tribes also hunting these orca or hunting whales for like food too well they do hunt whales for food and i don't know if they hunt orcas or not okay but i've worked with um beluga and various dolphins and you know i've known orcas i've known pilot whales and I don't see a huge difference between them. You know, just like I don't see a huge difference between uh, the various types of humans that are on our planet together. We're so, all just one species. Yeah, hello. <laughs> you would think that we could figure that out, but apparently a lot of people have problems with that. I know, right? So... We've got these animals that uh, were not valued at all. And Ted Griffin started to move the needle so that people started to see orcas differently. And they went to SeaWorld and uh, Sea Life Park and all these other places. And SeaWorld in particular went to work to try to breed these animals. And there's problems with that because uh, just dealing with whales in captivity, you're going to have a problem with having enough genetic diversity to have a good, healthy population. But I think it's something that we should work on together internationally Instead of trying to work on it just in one 
area. Yeah, because in zoos, breeding of animals is managed internationally and it's not perfect. It's not perfect because if you move animals and so on, uh, things happen. You know, right. sometimes animals die or they don't thrive or something like that. But it's very possible that we could collect semen and artificially inseminate animals and have a much more vigorous, healthy breeding plan with animals all over the place. Now, why should we do that? And one reason is that- Preservation of species? Yeah. And and one really good reason for that is the PON1 gene. And this is a gene that allows animals to um, process, to break down organophosphates and other toxic chemicals. And almost all of the marine mammals are missing that gene. Now it's possible that with the inroads in genetic engineering and genetic therapies, that we could actually create a cure for that problem. We might be able to actually fix that problem. We might be able to introduce an, the enzyme. How did they lose that gene, if you can explain? Well, it isn't known exactly why or how, but all the animals that do not have regular legs, except as far as they know so far, the fur seals, walruses, and spotted seals. And they don't know why those animals have an quote-unquote, unbroken P-O-N-1 gene. Okay. But the actual person that um, discovered the gene said something that actually isn't correct. She hypothesized, or maybe, maybe the reporters didn't get it correct. So I should be careful about saying she didn't understand. But anyway... She had it. It was said that she hypothesized that uh, they didn't. The ant, marine mammals would be at a disadvantage if they had the enzyme that the PON1 gene made, which I believe is called peroxinase. And that was because she said that they inhale so much oxygen in order to dive to depth that it would oxidize so much stuff in their system. Well, that's not true. I happened to work in diving physiology for several years with Dr. Jerry Coyman's lab, and he's one of the top diving physiologists in the world. And he demonstrated that marine mammals exhale their breath before they dive. They don't inhale. And if you watch, like I've been out in flanks of pilot whales and as they come up, they're hunting, right? And they're coming right toward the boat that we were in. And then just before they dove under the boat, they go. 
They don't go. <gasps> they yeah, breathe. no. They breathe out. I've I've seen how they do it. Like, yeah, I've seen at SeaWorld when they take that breath of air, they exhale and then they close their blowhole. Close it down. They, yeah, that and way water doesn't get into their lungs. Exactly. And if you watch regular whales. You know, like um, humpback or gray whales or or any of those, you will see that when they surface and spout, it's they don't just like you said, they don't just leave their blowhole open and they don't inhale. And here's why, because if they inhale before they dive they're going to be subject to a greater danger of embolism. As a matter of fact, they exhale before they dive. And the only air that's left in their lungs and their body cavity is that which they could not expel from their uh, bronchiolas. Right. And Mm -hmm. these animals are built so that like the ribs on a lot of them are two-thirds to three-quarters cartilage. And if you see pictures, did you ever see the pictures of Tuffy underwater when he worked for the Navy and he went down a thousand feet and took a picture of himself? No, I have not seen that. He looked like a folded grocery bag. You know, a brown paper grocery bag? Yeah. Allow me to demonstrate. See like that? Uh-huh. That's what the side of his rib cage looked like. Wow. Because in the compression, his body just got small. So they didn't even know if dolphins could dive to that depth because do- bottlenose dolphins are shallow water dolphins in general. But he was able and willing to go down to a thousand feet, snap his own picture, come straight up, and he showed how compressible his body is. But when that happens, if that animal had a lung full of air, it would or it could compress the gases in the lungs out of the villi and into the bloodstream, the uh, space between the lungs and the chest wall and so on and so forth. It's way more dangerous. So anyway, that's a little rabbit hole. But the PON1 gene is very important. We need to study that. We need to fix this for the marine mammals because we're the problem. We're the reason that there is organophosphate pollution and oil. Well, some of the oil pollution is natural, but we do a lot of it. We add a lot of the toxins to the ocean, but to fix it, we need to be able to work with the animals. We need to have them close at hand. And you know, another place where animals in captivity were really critically helpful to the killer whales in the wild, and in particular, the the southern resident orcas, is do you remember... When SeaWorld took overhead pictures of its whales 
in order to support the assessment of the southern resident whales. Yes, I actually remember that. Uh, they actually talked about it, and they still actually continue to talk about it today in their Orca Encounter presentations, but they talked about it in their Killer Whales Up Close presentations. Yeah, and they were able to show that, the, in general, the um, whales in Puget Sound are way underweight. They are under condition. They may be all starving to death. This is a big deal. And I, I want to mention one other thing while we're talking about the benefits of whales and other animals in captivity um, and how they reach back to help their wild counterparts. And that is SeaWorld had um, an amazing research uh, institute. Is that still going even? Yes, the Hub SeaWorld Research Institute. Yeah. Yes, that is still going. And I know that... I know that also when they were doing the drone study, they also took... Um, measurement measurements of when we were breeding orcas, how the orcas in human care were pregnant, and compared it to orcas that were out in the wild that were pregnant, so mm. they could tell the difference if it was a healthy pregnant orca in the wild or if it was in danger. Wow. Okay. Outstanding. And another thing about the Carl Hubs Institute is if you go through the papers that they produced, it isn't how to get the most behaviors out of an orca for making money at SeaWorld or um, how can we make captive whales or human managed whales live longer so that we, you know, or get more efficient use of food. That's what you would read about in agriculture. But with the Carl Hubbs Institute, you will find research about stuff that is not going to make money for anybody, but broadens our understanding of oceanography and marine biology and marine mammals and marine animals. And exactly. nobody else is doing it and nobody else can afford to do it. And when people threw SeaWorld into a tailspin and just painted them with a blackfish brush, right. they have really harmed lots of animals. And lots of research. And I really, it just makes me, I mean, I just think if these people really like animals, why don't they get educated about these issues? Why don't they learn about these groups that are using emotional manipulation to get money out of them? And their payoff is they get a dopamine fix. I mean, I'm so sick of hearing those commercials. This is Nellie. Nellie just had a hundred puppies 
and they're all going to die unless you send us. And it's like, if you do the research, you find out Nellie wasn't even in America. Right. Nellie is just a manipulative creation to get money out of people. People need to wake up, smell the coffee, and not support these people that are not for the benefit of the animals. And okay. aren't these the aren't these the commercials that are using the the in the arms of an angel? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, and did you just see that ASPCA and HSUS just got demoted in their charity ratings? I did not. Oh yeah, look it up. I posted it recently on Facebook, so you can go to my webpage, my Facebook page, and see it. It's been very recent. Oh gosh, now I need to go check this out. Yeah, you got to check it out. You got to check it out. Okay, so we talked about some broad implications of the way that we are allowing people with an agenda. And they, and they come right out and say it, HSUS and PETA come right out and say that they think animals are better off dead than living in association with humans. And their strategy is clear. They go out, go after the top of the pile, you know, the top of the top echelon people. They went after SeaWorld. They went after Ringling Brothers Circus. And once they take those people down, then everybody else falls more easily. And for example, in the Ringling Brothers case, um, they were charged, the humane groups, the so-called humane groups, the animal rights extremists, were charged with racketeering. And they had to pay $15 million. But the strategy is the same. They just keep imposing lawsuits on the rightful owners. Do you remember the nosy case? That was an elephant. Yes, I remember that one very well. Oh, gosh. So this this elephant family, because this was their one elephant, and that was part of their family. And they had just passed their USDA inspection. And some little local animal control officer goes out and stops them and takes custody of their elephant, endangering everybody and endangering the elephant. I mean, that is downright stupid. That is just stupid. It's like, I don't care if you're the world's elephant expert. You don't go in and take somebody else's elephant where everybody is distressed and so on and so forth. And then they turned that elephant over to a so-called sanctuary, which was infected with tuberculosis. And I haven't followed the case of Nosy, but her owners never saw her again. And they made a nosy law in New Jersey, and they said um, that you cannot drive an animal through New Jersey, uh, any exotic animal. Hey, if you're driving on a federal highway and you have a federal license, 
Who is the township of what you call it? Who are they to come and give you a problem? I mean, at one point, the federal government came back and said, if you interfere with this, then you will lose your highway funding. That was a good thing. We need to get back in touch with that mentality and go to bat for it's not just for our livelihoods. It's not just for the people that love to be in contact with these animals, but it's for um, the animals themselves and the ability to bring them together to breed and the ability to bring them together to do their magic with people. It goes on and on. We need to have some very effective lobbyists. I don't know how we do that. So while you were talking about Nosy, I did uh, go on to your Facebook page and I watched that uh, clip on how the HOSUS got a D. A D, really? Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm not. Oh, wow. I'm not surprised. So next. Let's get them out of there. But here's the thing. People have become just sitting ducks for misinformation. You know, I, I, I think it happened with Facebook, where on the other electric, you know, social groups, we had groups and we had to moderate them. And people would come to participate. And you would still get some real bozos, people that would come out of the shoot going, and your grandmother wore army boots and she reflects on you. And you're like, what? And you just had to stop all that. But with Facebook, every unvetted crazy nut can come out and publish whatever they want to on any subject. And it goes out there with all the good information. And now with AI, I don't know what's going to happen to the world. Because with AI, all these people are thinking, oh, this is really great. Look, I can say, write me a sales pitch about such and such. And it comes back great until it doesn't. And the problem is, it can look great and it can sound great, but it can be totally wrong. And AI doesn't have common sense. It'll just spew out information. Oh gosh, I wish I could think of the one that I just heard recently. It was something about, uh, they said, you know, how many, what does it take for a Jewish person to do blah, blah, blah? And what religion are they? And they said, we're sorry, uh, something to the effect of, we can't discuss religion because we don't know what it is. And that's like not a good thing to discuss or something like that. And it's like, we told you it was a Jewish person. <laughs> Can you not read that AI? So yeah, we've got a, a ways to go, but oh, people boy. are losing the ability to read and to comprehend and to assess I'm sorry to jump on the bandwagon, Joseph, but your generation has been reared on 
electronic screens and very short, you know, attention spans. You I think gotta that, pull it around. I think that would be the generations after me that are starting to also feel that because my brother, he's 15. Mm -hmm. And then my sister, she's seven. So, Are you thinking they're, they're worse than you were or really? Yes. Wow. They are worse than I am. I was sitting with some relatives at a family celebration and people were texting each other across the dinner table. Are you serious? I'm totally serious. I'm totally serious. I kind of get a little whatever. I'm becoming the eccentric <laughs> aunt, right? Okay, so now let's talk about Lolita's case from the standpoint of what's good for Lolita. Yes, let's get back on track with Lolita. Sorry. Okay, so what do you think is for the best for Lolita. I think, in my personal opinion, and this is my personal opinion, so if anyone wants to disagree, that's totally fine. I know we all have our own opinions. Yeah, uh, yeah, but before you beg off, just tell us and then tell us why you think that, because you might have a very good basis. But in my opinion, she should stay in Miami, and they should have a they should build a facility that doesn't involve moving her 3000 miles across the country to and cause stress on her yeah cuz that kind of stress uh the pathologist at the national zoo used to tell us that di uh disease is 90% stress and an animal that's been moved has a three times greater chance of getting sick or dying for an entire year compared to their cohort. So and then I wonder whose hands it'll be on if that right, happens. Right. Like, we don't really care what your intentions are. You need to pull up to the plate, get an education, and become responsible stewards. And uh, let's talk about what they're going to do for Lolita and what the problems are. So I'm going to go to... Hey fans, are you enjoying training with Casey? Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Casey Covert on YouTube. That is youtube.com forward slash C slash Casey Cover. Also, give the podcast a like, share, and comment. Thanks for joining us. Come back for more news and views on animal training and living with animals. Stay at the top of the pack with Casey. This is Joseph Laughlin, producer of Training with Casey. See you next time.